0: The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum. The theme was relationships, and the Relational Discipleship Network hosted a track called Relational Discipleship, How to Shift Your Church and Culture. That's where today's episode was recorded, and we've got a free giveaway that you can download by Jim Putman, who is one of the founders of the Relational Discipleship Network. He and his team have helped train thousands of pastors to make disciples in America and around the world. And he's released for our audience a primer for one of his books called The Death of Discipleship. In this book, Jim with his co-author describes the dynamics of pride and humility in discipleship and what godly submission looks like. You can download this for free by going to discipleship.org slash relational. That's discipleship.org slash relational. Now here's today's track session. From the Relational Discipleship Network,
1: the material I'm going to show you uh, now is in uh, Real Life Discipleship. It's in the Real Life Discipleship Manual. It's also in, um, or the, uh, it's also in Discipleship. Uh, and if if you want some of this stuff, I, it's at the the uh, the Resource uh, Center that they have here. Um, but. Here's what I want to do before I dive into that. So why don't you turn that off real quick because people are going to get started looking at that and I'm going to lose them. Uh, this all fits. Remember, we started with for session one. And if you missed any part of this, it's all I think they podcasted or, or recorded it. First thing we have to do is have if we're going on a discipleship journey, you got to have the right Destination. What is real spiritual maturity? You got to have intentional leaders that know several things. They know what is the destination. They know how to get there. There's a map, right? They know their role is to, to drive a vehicle called relationship. So they're not just moving towards spiritual maturity. They're being and they're growing personally. But if they're a disciple maker then they know how to, d- to lead an environment, a vehicle called relationship, to spiritual maturity along the road map. They know how to drive the vehicle car. So you need the right destination, an intentional leader, a relational environment. Now we're talking about a reproducible process, which is the road map. If you're going from where I live to Seattle, that's I-90, and there are several stops along the way that tell you you're a quarter of the way there, halfway there, three quarters all the way. Make sense to you? All right. What we believe is this. You've heard me say this over and over, over and again, that you don't uh, divorce the teachings of Jesus from the methods of Jesus and get the results of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest disciple maker in history. Okay? So... We started looking, not just at what his teachings were about, was there some sort of of reproducible thing that Jesus was doing with his disciples uh, that they could reproduce and that we see not only in Jesus' life, but we see in the life of the disciples. Uh, And we saw that there was. All right, so let me just give you what we call the SCMD, Share Connect Minister Disciple. Jesus comes on the scene. He shares who he is, and he shares the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. He shares who he is. I like that word share. He's not telling. He's sharing. It's a relational term. Correct? Those who accepted the message, he invited into connection. Share, connect. Come connect with me. When Jesus said, come and follow me, he was also uh, revealing his methodology. He's really saying, come and be with me. Come connect with me. Share, Connect. In that connecting relationship, he was replacing what they thought they knew with his perspective. Remember how many times did Jesus say, you have heard it said, but I say, right? So he's connecting with them relationally, but as he's doing that, he's revealing the mindset of God himself to these guys. He's moving them from being self-centered. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Can I sit at your right and left hand? He's moving them to becoming ministers, from, from takers to ministers, that word ministry, minister. Second Corinthians 5 says we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Share, connect, ministry. Now I'm, I'm starting to see needs of others. I'm starting to, to minister, disciple. Share, connect, minister, disciple. Now go, go make disciples. Okay? In the early church, the disciples shared who Jesus was. Acts 2. This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Right? Go for, repent be baptized every one of you. Remember Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey Repent, be baptized, Acts 2.38. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, so you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God would call. Then you get to verse 40 and 41. They went on and gave them many other words, encouraging them to, about this the, the corrupt generation. And then it goes on to say, and all the believers, all those who accepted the message were baptized. Three thousand were added to their number that day. Then it says, they, same ones who had accepted the message, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The disciples have been told, go and make disciples, baptizing, and teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread into prayer, right? And you start to see what they did. They shared the message. Those who accepted the message, they connected. They met together in the temple courts and from house to house. Connection. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. In that connection, they're starting to learn about the kingdom of God. They've got the Holy Spirit. They're starting to change, right? As you get to Acts chapter 6... The Greek widows are not being taken care of, right? And they're complaining. The the, the Jewish widows are being taken care of, which means there's this selling of possessions of goods and giving to whoever I need, Acts 2, Acts 6. Some people aren't being cared for. The, 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 The message that the disciples gave is, choose seven men from among you who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They placed their hands on them. They gave them the role of ministering To the needs of others. They were ministering. Right? And finally, a persecution breaks up. That breaks out. Where does Philip go? To Samaria. And he begins to share who Jesus was. Connect with them. Raise them up for ministry and send them out to make disciples. And the church began to spread. So share, connect, ministry, disciple. Now this is really important because... How many of the people in your church think it's their job to share who Jesus was? What's the percentage? Let's say say it's 80% actually have heard that they're supposed to go share Christ. How many of them actually believe, though, they're supposed to connect with those they share with for the purpose of discipleship? How many of them actually believe they're supposed to train anybody for ministry And then they're to send people out to make disciples. Do you notice how the number gets smaller and smaller and smaller? Most people have not, again, they don't believe their job is to share. Their job is just to invite somebody to church so you can share who Jesus is. And, and certainly, you check the box, you prayed the prayer. You don't have to connect in relationship. That's optional. You just do that when you sing a few songs. But that's not the kind of connection. You see in the New Testament, believing that everybody should be a minister. Would you agree that it's biblical that Paul goes on to say, some of you are an eye, some of you are a nose. We're all part of the body of Christ. We all have gifts. It's in there, but how many people actually think their job is to serve and minister as believers with their gifts and abilities in the church? And what, is that? what do they say? 18% of believers serve in any way in the body of Christ and only about 15% are in any sort of connection. I mean, these are the national statistics. All right, so share, connect, minister, disciple is there. But now the question is, and now I want you to go to the, um, the graph that I gave you. All right, I want you to notice on the outside here is share, connect, minister, release to be disciples. See that? Share, connect, minister, disciple. You see that? Now, I want you to notice the inner ring is what we call the five stages of spiritual development. All right, so now I want you to forget that outside ring for a second. And I want you to look at the inside ring. See that? First of all, we believe as you look through scripture, you see this process of spiritual growth that the Bible speaks of. For instance... Let's go through and see if we can f- figure out If this is scriptural Does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 2 We were all by nature Objects of God's wrath Dead in our transgressions and sins All have fallen short of the glory of God Does everyone start out dead Okay Jesus said unless you are born again you're, You can't enter or see The kingdom of heaven Would you all agree with that That speaks of a spiritual birth. The Holy Spirit comes in. When you're born again, this born again picture is a picture of being born into the family of God as a child of the Most High God. But also, you're supposed to have brothers and sisters. Right? You're part of the family, the household of God. Is this all scriptural? So you're dead until you're born again. And now you're an infant in Christ. Does scripture in anywhere say that, uh, you know, you ought to be more mature, but you're mere infants in Christ? Is there is that terminology in there? Yes. Right. So you become an infant, but as you spend time when you're an infant, you're supposed to, if you're an infant, you're supposed to have a spiritual family. You're supposed to have parenting. You're supposed to have uncles and aunts, brothers and sisters. Why? Well, because when you're born, I want you to imagine, what if we did with human infants the same thing we did with spiritual infants? Hey, here's a a book. Go feed yourself. Go take care of yourself. We call that abuse. When you help someone get born again and you treat them like, hey, check... You're saved. You don't have to grow up. The best they do oftentimes is become spiritual brats. You know, what happens to somebody who hasn't been parented, hasn't been disciplined, hasn't been shown? They become brats. I, I, I ask this, this question of pastors around the country. What's your percentage of people that are spiritual children and infants? And the, the number, normal number I get is 90%. 10% are spiritual parents after I help you define this. And so, what does it look like when 90% of the people who call themselves Christians are spiritual infants or children? They're, they're saved, but they, don't, they really don't look that much different than non believers, but they represent Jesus. And they go around saying, Jesus can save. Yeah, but what's the evidence of that? I don't see any difference in you. Make sense to you? Why would the world want to come in and spend time with spiritual brats who look the same as them but just think they're saved? Okay. Infants. Children. Children. You move to child. That's where you know the language. You can actually, I've got some grandkids that are children. They're not infants. They can do some things. They've, they can speak, but they're still pretty young. Pretty Immature. Right? They grow into adolescents, young adults. By the way, John the Apostle said, To you b- b- infants in Christ, I say this. To you children, I say this. To you young men, I say this. To you fathers, I say this. He's using this language, of, and he uses all male vernacular, but he's not saying, he's not talking about males here. He's, he's talking about people. These are stages of spiritual growth in First John. Young, uh, young adults, adolescents, and then parents. Now what we developed at this point is, and remember, everything we're doing here, we're not doing as just as pastors, we're trying to teach our people. Remember, my job as a pastor is to raise up a system by which at the end of the day, all the people who are becoming Christians can understand it and reproduce it. So I want all of our believers to know, I share Christ with you, you get connected, you train for ministry, and you release to make disciples. I want them to all know they're in that process. I want them to all know that people become dead, they're dead until they get born again. They're infants, children, young adult parents. So what we teach our home group leaders. This is what we do series on every year in one form or another. We keep this in our one-on-one class, and our 301 class. We, we work at this all the time to try to help our guys like Tim who discipled Luke to know what it is that they're doing. What, what, what next? Who am I got? When Tim uh, saw Luke, he saw a dead man. What do you do with a dead man? Remember the outer ring? You share with them. Share the truth and your life with them. When they get born again, What do you do with them? You connect with them in relationship, and you start training them to become ministers instead of takers. What do you do with a young adult? You train them for ministry. What do you do with a parent? You release them to go make spiritual babies. All right, so one of the things that we created, and again, I'm just flying through this. You'll have to read the material, and there's the training and all that. All I can do is give a taste of it. But let me just say it this way. What we did is we created this concept of the phrase from the stage. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you spend time with them and you're curious and you ask questions, you start to figure out where they're at. Remember, if you were in one of the earlier sessions, I'm speaking to you here right now, but I have no way of knowing where you're at when I'm doing all the teaching. That's why you'll never know whether somebody's spiritually mature just because they come to a class. Because I have no idea what you're hearing, how you would apply it. I have no idea. I don't go, well, because you took a, a class or a seminar, you're all spiritual parents. There's no way I could possibly know that. How would I know it? As we got to know each other, where you were at, and as I listen to you tell your story, and I'm asking questions, and I start to figure out where you're at. Once I figure out what you're saying and the way you're living, now I know where you're at. You might have assumed that all of Jesus' disciples were mature because they'd been with him for a while. But what was the last thing they were fighting about on the night Jesus was betrayed on the way to the upper room? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They, they're mature because they're with Jesus. You see, what, you see my point? That's why you can have people going to church for years and they're still immature. But how would you know that? So here's some of the phrases that you know. What are the kinds of things that a spiritually dead person might say? Now we know you're dead because of unbelief and rebellion. So what are some of the things that a dead person might say? I don't believe in God. What else?
2: <laughs> that's ruthless. Yes, that's ruthless. That's
1: ruthless. And true. Your shack, my shack, and a bed we go. Yeah. What else? You're quick. And I appreciate that when you use that ability against him. Uh, how about uh, there are many ways to heaven? There is no hell. Jesus is just a uh, you know, another religious leader. Right? These are the kinds of things. So when you're spending time with them, I kind of know by what you're saying where you're at. Now I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to judge you or walk away from you. If you've been spending time with Jesus, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. What do I, I'm going to share my life with you and share the truth with you. I'm going to get to know you because I'm a disciple maker if I'm a parent. Make sense? A infant is characterized by ignorance, not stupidity, ignorance. They just don't know the word. When, when, when Luke got saved and he's talking to a woman who's not his wife about his sex life, thinking that's okay. Okay, that's even stupid for an unsaved person. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, ruthless, ruthless. <laughs> I mean, come on. There's no common sense there. And and even if you were as an unbeliever, you don't tell your wife about it like an idiot. Innocent. I was innocent. Yeah. But he's characterized by ignorance. He doesn't know. But he doesn't know. Right? He's an infant. I'll I'll give you an example. I had a lady come to me after church one time, and she said, hey, my granddaughter... uh, uh, just got born and she looks a lot like my dead mother do you think she's reincarnated now I know I'm dealing with somebody who doesn't believe or maybe an infant so here's what I asked I said let me ask you a question have you received Jesus Christ yes I, I started uh, going to a home group I got saved I got baptized a few uh, weeks ago I go so okay you're having a question you don't know the answer to but you believe the Bible's the word of God. oh yeah I said, okay, I'm dealing with an infant, and I said, here's what the Bible says, man is destined to live once and face judgment, but you need to talk to your life group leader about that, right, what was I dealing with based on, so, and again, I'm not judging her, oh, she's stupid, you know, I'm figuring out where she's at so I can help her. They become, when you become a child, now you know the language, you know a lot of the right answers, but your motivation is very self-centered. They say things like this, I love my church. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I didn't like that preaching, you didn't feed me. I have people that think they're spiritually mature and they come in and they go, I just left the church I was at and you're just feeding me. I'm just so fed when I'm here. And I'm like, I see this vacuum. (laughs) Because see, the last time I needed to be fed, I was two. Now again, I'm not saying you're not fed in a worship service. It's more like though, a family gathering where you've eaten all week and now we're eating together as a meal. Okay. If that's what you mean, great. But it's telling me, first of all, (laughs) you're going to probably get bored when the honeymoon's over. And I tell you something that you've heard before and not in a new way, you're going to go up. I'm going to go to a new church where I can be fed over there. I'm going, all right. Uh, Don't you dare branch my small group. I didn't like that music at all. Of course, God can't like music that you don't like. I, 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 me, me, me. I've even heard pastors, they do this. It's my pulpit. This is my ministry. That's a player mindset in a coach's position. Mine, I. By the way, how many of us, I'm a spiritual parent, but I can... I can slip back into childhood in a heartbeat. I actually got in a fight with my wife not long ago, and I said this, you started it. <laughs> Anybody else in here, help me out. Come on. <laughs> now, the difference between a child and a parent who's acting like a child is a child lives in childhood and has moments maybe where they're more spiritually mature. Whereas a parent, when they, as soon as they say that, they're like, or they're in an accountability group, and they're, and they're like, oh, geez, i got to go back because I acted like a child. Right? These aren't, you don't just become a parent, you're forever a parent. You still have moments of childhood. You're never done growing. This is not pigeonholing people into characteristics. It's, a, it's not going, and by the way, none of these people uh, in these positions are more important to God than others. For instance, in the human world, children are the least useful, but they're most important to God. We're not talking about value here. We're talking about growth as you go. But we want to release parents who understand the destination, can, can drive a vehicle relationship, and understand spiritual growth. You understand? You see what I'm saying? So we're not using this as a tool to pigeonhole people or to say I'm better or I'm this or that. And just because you're a parent doesn't mean you don't have moments of, of utter stupidity. Because you do. You just say, God, please forgive me. And who do I need to ask for forgiveness for? And you're like, you know, you confess it and you move on. Okay? So, children, self-focused. Young adults, they become servants. They actually can do chores. They actually, a lot of times they're zealous for the Lord. They, they can do the right thing. You, you, you allow adolescents to babysit and protect and do certain things, but you don't want them reproducing yet necessarily meaning uh you know uh, they're not ready to parent yet now you can put them in roles we love I, we put people in the, the young adult stage in life group leadership people that are committed and you learn as you go but not without some parenting not without some help do you understand what i'm saying they these folks are very idealistic they they can be responsible they're very god centered But they don't think intentionally. By the way, I would say 90% of pastors in the United States are spiritual young adults. They think their role is to do all the funerals, all the weddings, to do everything for everybody else. But they don't think intentionally about reproduction. They're doing everything as shepherds. They call it shepherding, and that's true. It is shepherding, but your job isn't to just take care of everybody. You're trying to raise children who can take care of themselves and take care of others. And so they don't multiply. They don't delegate. They don't help people, and they do almost all the work themselves, and they get exhausted and tired, which is why most churches are 90 people or less. It's because they don't multiply. They just care for and they And they love God, and they're doing it from the right heart. But intentionality isn't something they think about because they're so busy doing it. Make sense to you? But a spiritual parent, they're thinking more intentionally. A good parent goes, this is not my child, it's the Lord's child. And I'm trying to help my child find the gifts that God made for them because someday they're going to have a family of their own. And you're thinking about, I'm teaching my kids with the end in mind. And they're intentional. You see what I'm saying? They don't, they're not trying to have kids so that they stay in their house until they're 60 years old. They're trying to raise people who are able to have kids and know what they're doing with their kids. Does this make sense to you? So what we're doing is we're trying to teach our people, what does it mean? Where are you at personally? Not because so, you're not valuable. And usually when I do this, most Christians, when, they, when we go, what are the words that define you? And we ask them to define themselves first. And most of them are in the children some, a lot of them are in infant children because they've never been taught, never sought to, never thought they needed to. They were handed a Bible, told to go to church, and they follow the rules, so they come every once in a while because they didn't know there was anything any better. Some are young adults, very few are parents spiritually. Secondly, we do this so that they know what kinds of heart transformation needs to happen, that there is a bigger overall plan that God had something more for you that you're called on within the DNA of every child if it's a healthy child has the potential of being a parent in every human being so it is in the DNA of a believer if you were born again you're called on to be a disciple and to make disciples it's in the spiritual DNA i'll ask some people are you a parent and they'll go, yep, I'm a spiritual parent. And I'll go, well, who are your children? Well, I don't really have children. No one gets to call themselves a physical parent if they don't have kids. If you say, well, I'm capable of having them, but you're not. If you don't have spiritual kids you're training, you're not a parent. By the way, you're not a parent merely because you're a pastor and you're running a system. You're just a daycare provider. Make sense to you? All right, I'm going to have Brandon come up and, and, and share. Uh, oh, you're going to come up with hers?
2: Yeah. I want to say, uh, can we give it up for Jim? Thanks, Jim. Yep. Yeah. Great job, Jim. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about Jim is he has a thing called the Sermon Club, and he has a variety of people that speak at Real Life. So what I appreciate about Jim is what he's saying here. I'm always assessing through what's the integrity of what's Jim saying and how's he walking this out. And one of the reasons, Jim, I can follow you is you do your best to have the integrity to, to walk this out. So I want to appreciate you doing that. Because I'm always weighing out, like, who do I want to follow? What would be the characteristics I would follow somebody? Integrity is a huge one. And so Jim does a sermon club where he gets people together, and he brainstorms through his sermon. takes about, I think he put about, what, six hours in? So he spends the rest of his time not writing his sermon. He spends the rest of his time investing in people. So we have other speakers that rotate through at Real Life. And so Jim is following this process by raising up other speakers as well. And so he's not just saying, hey, all you guys raise up people and mature them, and I don't have to. No, he's doing the same thing even at the podium. And so I appreciate that, Jim. So uh, next, we have Brandon Ginden. Brandon Ginden, come on up. So Brandon was an uh, uh, executive pastor at Real Life Ministries for several years. He felt called to plant a church down in Austin, Texas. I mean, Houston, Texas. Yeah, Austin, what was I thinking? Uh, He goes down to Houston, plants a church. Uh, What was cool about Brandon is when when we planted a church, when he planted a church, the first year was setting this kind of DNA. How do you create a disciple-making culture? How do you help people understand this disciple-making process? And then launching the Sunday service was a year later, and so uh, I appreciate you being here, Brandon. Brandon's authored a variety of books. One of the books that really ties into this session well is the uh, re- the real life discipleship uh, manual. It's the white workbook. A lot of uh, home group leaders go through that. A lot of leaders go through that. It's listed in the in the in the section in here. If you're interested in that, it's in the uh, at the resource table. Brandon, love to have you Just
3: dive right. in. Thanks, Luke. One of my favorite. <laughs> Uh, passages in Scripture is out of First Thessalonians, and Paul is writing the church in Thessalonica. And that at that church, at the at that time, uh, when you read in the Scripture, you see it was very very influential church in the face of persecution. And Paul uses this this term. He he begins praising them for the work that they're doing, and he compliments them and says that you have imitated us as we imitated Christ. And one of, I think, my frustrations have been is to watch in the church and there, uh, there's conferences and there's great things and, and all of this stuff, but the church tends to spend so much time, effort, energy today trying to innovate something new, and Scripture tells us to imitate something old. This, there, there, we, we can pick up resources and all those things. And I hope if you've, if you've been part of our track, you've been in this, that what, this is not a real life thing. This is not, uh, you know, something that we created all that we've tried to do. Even the wheel, that was a, a, a simple thing that Jim and I and, and the staff, we argued over and fought through what it was would look like to try and put words to what we saw Jesus do in the scriptures a tool for us to teach from. So my hope and, and challenge to you is dive in, go back in maybe for the first time and look at the life of Christ of what did he do? What, why did he ask so many questions? Why did he debrief with the guys? Why? And to push yourself to imitate what Jesus did. If, if you hear anything from us, I think all of us would stand up here and say, guys, go do what Jesus did. That's what Paul praises the, the church in Thessalonica for. And when you get into chapter two, I love this because Jim talks about the method of Christ and the message of Christ. Those two things have to be together. And you read Paul's words and he says, not only did we share the gospel with you, the message, we shared our very what? Ah, that's the methodology, isn't it? It's all throughout the New Testament. It's right there in front of us. Let's just live out what the scriptures tell us to live out. One of the things that we've learned and we've talked about through this disciple making process is the principle of my part, their part, God's part. Discipleship, that process gets so jacked up when we try to do God's part. When we think we're the Holy Spirit for someone else. And I want to encourage you, if we could put the graphic back up of the large wheel, when you look at this, this graphic, the concept, when we go through this, the outer wheel is what, if I'm the disciple maker, this is what I do with them. The internal wheel is, this is who they are. So when, when we walk through this process, we, we use as a guideline, I can only do my part. You all know the story, Jim talked about Acts 6, 7, 8, getting in there, and Philip. When Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch, God sent him there. He's walking alongside the chariot. He overhears the eunuch, and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. The the eunuch invites him into the chariot. He explains to him. We know that he becomes saved, and and he baptizes him. When you follow that story and look, you can ask, what was Philip's part? What did he do? He could not do God's part, could he? What was God doing in that story? God was convicting. God was drawing. God always does his part every single time. Philip could not do the eunuch's part and vice versa. One of the most freeing things in disciple making is for you to know I can only do my part. and I don't want to do that part well. Discipleship is messy, and when we get in the trenches of life with people, people fall away, people struggle, Jesus dealt with it, people will be very committed, and then they'll flake and leave, and on and on and on it goes. But you can only do your part. Just over a year ago, uh, we, as I said, we were in Houston, and Hurricane Harvey hit. It was unbelievable. I, had, I mean, no one had ever seen anything like that. It was incredible. 58 inches of rain in our area in like 48 hours. It was unbelievable. And the aftermath of the storm was a great opportunity to watch the church be the church. And we had an opportunity in our church to minister to some families. In the very first house I went to, they had about two feet of water. And uh, we we got to, to kind of muck this house out and help this family. And the guy that was in that Uh, the, the husband of that household, his name's Greg, he and his wife are from South Africa. And I got this opportunity to kind of come alongside and help them and our, and our church helped them. But Greg and Laura were not believers. In fact, far, far from the Lord. And the whole time Greg's looking at me, he's kind of a quiet guy. He's looking at me like, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And, and you know, the story just that God uses that when we go out, and we minister to people. But it opened the door for me to invite Greg over to my house and just hang out with a group of guys. It wasn't even a really small group. I do that with the guys in my group. We'll just get together and hang out and talk life. And I invited him over. And he sat around with us, the group of guys, and those guys left, and he kind of hung out. And the whole time, I know he's going, what? Why? You guys are weird. And we're in my kitchen. I really don't know him very well. And, and he's getting ready to leave. And I turn and look at him. Now, Greg's like 6'5", 6'4", 6'5", rugby player. This big kind of daunting guy. And I look at him and he's crying. Uh, what in the world? And he opens up to me about his history in the church in South Africa and what happened to his family and, and some abuse things that occurred. And it was awful. And I got to begin a journey with Greg, but even at that moment, I could not do God's part. God was doing his thing in Greg. I could not do Greg's part for him. But I just continued to invite him and bring Greg along and invite him to different things. Our men's breakfast, and I invite him to a men's retreat. And God began working in Greg over and building a, a culture, an environment to where he felt like he could be a part. We really hadn't had any deep spiritual conversations. We hadn't even talked about the Bible much yet. But I was getting to know him and earning the right in his life to talk to him. When we finally went to the men's retreat, Greg gave his life to Christ. And then he said, I began asking me, hey, can I come to your group? And he joined small group. And then he came to me and said, hey, will you spend some time with me one-on-one? I have so many questions. It's much like if you were in the earlier ones with Luke, where he was at at the beginning, if you heard Luke's story, where Luke was at and where Greg was at, I could only do my part and allow God to work and draw him. Be sensitive to that. Not try and do God's part for him. Not try and convince Greg to do something Greg wasn't ready to do. But to just walk with him just like Jesus did with his disciples. Ask questions, stay curious, listen, answer questions as they came up. And this summer, Greg came to me and he says, man, will you, will you spend some time with me one-on-one? Absolutely. Every Thursday morning, there's Greg, 8 a.m. He's got his Bible, list of questions. He writes them out. And we sit down and we go through God's word together. He and his wife are in our small group. He helps with men's ministry. This has been a year. I'm ready to turn a group over to Greg. Does he know everything that he needs to know? No, but he has faithfully done his part and I've watched God do his part. We sometimes want to turn these things into such complicated, programmatic thinking. And all we are really doing is stepping in and sharing our lives and doing the things that Jim was talking about. It's not that complicated. Don't overcomplicate it. But here's some of the things, the problems we run into when we try to get those things out of order and we try to do God's part. Because I see this in the church all the time. Someone comes to Christ much like Greg, and we take him and we give him a job and we put him in and we, we stick him over at being a minister, or a, a, a young adult. Now, think about that. If you do not have connectedness, people around you to help you, to walk with you, and no relationship, what happens to that person in your church when they skip all of those steps and they go right into serving and they get disappointed? Do we have infants in roles in the church and then we wonder why they act like infants? They've never had connectedness to process the truth, scripture, life, ask questions. I didn't throw Greg into the deep end of the pool at day one. We spent time together, but he had connectedness where he could kind of grow through this infant and child stage and live there as I had relationship with him. But when we take people and we throw them in and give them into positions, that's why what does scripture tell us? To not lay hands too early. But also walking with them and I gave Greg little things that he could do, little jobs, little uh, uh, things that I could watch him and walk with him. The key component was we were connected in relationship the whole time and have been. So if he struggles or he has questions, he can come to me and ask just like in Luke's story. Same exact thing. It becomes very practical in what we do and walking with them. So we're not skipping steps. We're not trying to do their part. We're not trying to do God's part. So ask yourself as you're discipling someone, if you are discipling someone, am I trying to do God's part for them? Pastors, how much do you carry around because you are trying to be the Holy Spirit for people? That's not healthy. It's not correct. We can only do what we can do. I'll have pastors ask all the time, how do I set this system up? How do we build this system in our church? What do we do? I'll say, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Who are you discipling today? Who are you discipling right now immediately in your life? Let's start there before we build the system. Just do your part and allow it to build. And I want to close with this part with Greg Greg is not a spiritual parent. He's not a spiritual parent. Until Greg starts uh, discipling someone, he's still not a spiritual parent. Greg is not a spiritual parent until Greg has a spiritual child. And I would even say this, until that spiritual child is growing and discipling someone else. Do you understand that? It has to, because then it's moved beyond me. It's not dependent on me. It's passed to Greg. Greg has passed to someone else, and that person is beginning to disciple someone else. You're creating a movement. So just because you are discipling someone does not mean you're a spiritual parent yet. Right? It's in the process. But if I'm discipling someone that is starting to disciple someone, now it's becoming a movement. Does that make sense? We're imitating Christ of what Jesus did so that it just doesn't stop with you ministering to someone it has to continue on so when Greg gets to the place to where he's discipling someone, raising them up and releasing them wingslap, slap high five and go awesome, it's moved beyond me, it moves beyond us, it becomes a movement okay Luke? Love ready? it Quick, give it up for Brandon. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about uh, Brandon's heart is to uh, imitate what Jesus did and pointing people there. One of the things that hopefully stood out with Greg and with my story with Tim is it's it was so powerful for me personally to when Tim applied scripture for what was very pertinent to what was going on in my life. Like I was like, wow, God's word actually says that like he was able to take what I was going through because and then here's what God's word saying about that and I was at a place I would matured enough where I was like wow it really says that and I heard Brandon saying the same thing when he's spending time with Greg he's able to apply God's word into Greg's life for exactly where Greg is at so I was so surprised like I was like it actually man God wrote that just for me that's amazing and so that's what's exciting about doing this in relationship is God's words come comes alive in a massive way, and so thanks for having the heart to pursue that. All right, so we're going to move to our Q and A session. You have these uh, these blank uh, uh, three by five cards. Any questions you have, fill them out, and we'll pass them. Just kind of pass them forward. We'll get as many questions as we can a- get answered in the next 20 minutes. So I'm going to introduce Bob Reed. Bob Reed. <laughs> So Bob is in the network. I'm sorry. Anyway, we won't say it. So Bob is in the network. Bob came from a traditional church uh, background, uh, walked through. Uh, share. Uh, I'll, do you want to share a little bit of your story do you want me to share his touch? I, I,
4: yeah, so I, w- I'm, I didn't grow up in the real-life culture. Um, went to one of those DS1s that's on the back. Highly, highly, highly encourage you guys to really figure out a way to get to one of those We're doing one at the end of November. Um, Went to one of those, had my life just rocked by it, um, and started trying to figure out how do you shift a culture. Our church was 100 years old. And uh, so... We uh, had a lot of changes, a lot of shifts that we had to do over time without, like Jim talks, you know, without trying to blow the church up. And I was probably close to doing that because I thought I knew what I was doing. And uh, so anyway, so then uh, shifted that culture. And then uh, this past summer, we moved to Texas, to Cyprus. Um, and uh, taking a church, going to branch. It's a multi-site church. I'm taking the other site. I'm going to branch it as its own autonomous church. And so, um, so right now, we're building, we're building that culture into our staff and into our church now.
2: That's good. What I think is really important is that uh, Bob. A lot, we get a lot of churches that ask, "Well, hey, we're already 50 years old, 100 years old. We've been going this direction for a long time. Is it even possible to shift the culture?" And so we have a lot of questions in here that are similar to that, like, hey, you know, here's one of them that's very similar to what Bob is saying. What Bob, what hopefully what you heard Bob say is it's very possible. It's very doable.
1: Yeah. All the other churches in our network, 70, 80 churches, all come from other places around the country. And that's the cool thing about having guys in a network where you're at, the size of your church, the age of your church, that they can show you what they learned, good and bad, and help you through that transition. Jesus' methodology works everywhere, by the way, because people are people. It's just how you apply it and the speed in which you apply change is very important, or you'll blow up your church when you didn't have to.
2: So what's kind of nice is after Bob navigated, started getting traction with his own church, started seeing these, this, this, this cool to just hear some of the stories. We went to, to Bob and said, now would you coach other churches? You've navigated this, would you help other churches? So they don't have to start from scratch. And so that is, when you hear the network, it's churches that have walked this out. Now they're willing to give back and help other churches and so and brandon's doing the same thing brandon coaches four or five churches we limit it to four or five it's like a mini small group so we can keep the dna of relationship kind of still running through the whole thing so it's just like a small group system just on a large scale and so we limit the number of churches in in into uh what brandon's going to coach four churches bob's only going to coach four churches we're not trying to build a massive network we're trying to go deep not so wide and uh, so appreciate you guys. It's hard to coach other churches. And Jim as well. Jim leans micro network. He coaches churches as well. All right. So we've got a variety of good questions here. In times, I'll try to read it. And, and your relationship that grows. Uh, is it written oh, in,
4: oh. Ang- is it in English? You want me to read it for
2: you?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bob, pre- please describe your golf game with Luke yesterday. <laughs> Thank you. Luke Thank
4: you very much. miniature golf. Yes.
2: <laughs> hey, my verbal game is my best game. Okay. Right now, just, I just say it. Okay. Where does baptism and evangelism fit into the discipleship roadmap? Well,
1: uh, first of all, uh, this, this distinction between evangelism and discipleship is ridiculous. Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples, which includes baptism and teaching. So when you, when you, I don't really understand that, that whole paradigm. I mean, I'm sure there's, you, you come kind of from that background. Maybe you understand it, but, uh, um, (laughs) baptism speaks of you've shared the message. They've accepted the message. They're, they're ready to die to themselves and be raised to walk into this life. It speaks of the beginning of the process. But when they come out of that water, I mean, the water is is a just a it's like a, a spiritual picture of what you're really doing. I'm dying to me being raised to walk in the newness of life. It's also a picture of being born again. Water washing you. Water doesn't wash you. The Spirit of God does that. But but it's just it's like burns it in your mind. This is what's going on. And then I'm being raised to walk in newness of life. Well, but but the family. When you're born into a, a family as a child, you're born with parents who are going to help you figure out what it means to live as a human being. The, the family, you're being born into a family that's going to help you figure out what it means to live the spiritual life. Because the spiritual life is completely different than the physical life. It's a whole new reality. And you don't just figure it out by handing them a Bible and saying, hey, figure, figure this out on your own. Part of the discipleship process is, so let me show you, you know. Luke had a disciple maker who said, let me show you where the Bible says this about... That. The reason it, it was like the Bible speaks to me is because he didn't just start in the book of Amos. Where do I start? Amos. Right? It's, the Bible speaks to it. Where does it speak to it? Show me how to use the tool so I know how to apply it to my life. And it, so how do I... So when you're talking about baptism is the picture of... And by the way, we baptize every person because Jesus said go into the world and make disciples baptizing. Acts 2 says, repent, be baptized every one of you. We baptize everyone because Jesus said to, right? And, and, and again, we, we want you to make a public confession and understand it, it ties spiritual reality to what you're doing, not just praying a prayer. Although baptism doesn't save anybody, Jesus does. It still, it burns, this is serious. This isn't just something you just check a box. So this is serious. And and there's going to be discipleship that's involved in this because you're being raised to walk into this life with a spiritual family is going to teach you what that looks like. It becomes much more important than just a little event. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so, I don't know if that answers the question or not. Maybe you know what.
4: No, I agree. I mean, I don't think you should be, like, I'm against even having uh, an evangel, you know, so I apologize if this is your title, but you know, evangelism pastor discipleship as if you're only responsible to do one thing. Yeah, I think it all if you're discipling people, you're teaching them to share the gospel. We're all called to be gospel carriers. Yeah. People have the gift of evangelism, but we all have a responsibility to evangelize. And so I think that if you leave that part you start segmenting Out that stuff. I think you do more damage than helping them understand it's holistic. It's, it's a we want to be gospel carriers as people. Um, So anyway, I
3: I think as well that creates programmatic thinking, and it alleviates it. It tells somebody you don't have to do this part of the process. This is you're hired to do this. Yeah, this is for the specialist, and this is for this specialist. And so of course the the if if the the congregation is left in the place of being infant or child, well, okay, of course. That's what that's what they do. And I just do this part. And we create a programmatic thinking in in the church that is incredibly broken. That's not the biblical picture of what church is to be.
4: Like I did I did this with our staff. I did this with our elders. I just came into a you know one of our meetings. I said, All right guys, put your stuff away, pull out a sheet of paper. I said if somebody walks up to you right now and says, "I want to accept Jesus biblically." How would you walk them through the gospel? How would you lead them to Christ? Just right now, go ahead and just do it. And and again, oftentimes the 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 thought or the idea is we're going to bring them to the pastor, the senior guy, the whatever. And so we're really trying again from a discipleship standpoint. I want to train and equip them to be able to to be able to. Comfortably and confidently be able to point them to Jesus and have, have them be able to know what that looks like. Uh, it, because it goes back to the wheel. Let me share this. Uh, I was meeting with a guy. He started coming to our, our house <clears throat> because of a friendship with my son. And he used to be a youth pastor at a church. Came to our area to kind of heal up. And... Um, Started coming to our house, never been discipled. And so we started to talk and I said, hey, if, you, if you're willing to meet with me every single week and we're going to get together and we're going to spend a lot of time together, I said, I'll disciple you. But I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go chase after. I said, you've got to be willing to meet with me and, and pursue this. So yeah, Absolutely. So meet with them. This is why this my part, your part, God's part and understanding the wheel is so critical. Because of what he had done, and his position, I would have naturally assumed that he was probably farther along on the wheel. Okay, I'm not going to tell you where he was a student pastor at. I started, I said, first question, man, I just want to know your story. I just want to know about you. Shares his whole story. Have no clue as he shares his story where he ever came to know Jesus Christ as a Savior. No clue. No clue. So I said, dude, thank you so much. That's awesome. I'm sorry for, you know, we kind of talked through it. I said, can you kind of help me understand? I'm trying to, I'm trying to connect the dots where you feel like you really accepted Christ. Oh, you know, it was still no clue. Didn't make any. It was like some time when he was in this drug whatever and he was falling back and he felt pushed by God and he had this experience. But still no clue. So I said, all right. I said, Rob, I said, would you, I said, if, if one of your students, former students came up to you and said, Dude, I want to know Jesus right now. I said, How would you, how would what, what would you do to lead him to Christ? He's like, wow, man, that's a good question. I honestly don't know. Great. Let's start there. And right there at Starbucks, just kind of walked him through the gospel. I said, Robin, do you feel like you've ever clearly understood the gospel and your need for it and what Jesus did for you? He goes, Bob, it's as embarrassing as this is, no. I said, awesome. I said, do you want to understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus? Yes, right there at Starbucks. We baptized him. The Baptismal pool was full of the college dudes that he was in. I just got to do the end job. All those guys had done all the heavy lifting up to then. And I just got the opportunity to lead him to Christ. Those guys were walking, but he and I started walking this out every week. We'd meet at 530 in the morning because he had to go to work. 530 in the morning every week. And then multiple times, because his, his life was jacked up. And so we'd meet multiple times. And then they'd, they'd do stuff on Facebook, so we'd have the conversations. And my kid's like, Dad, are you going to kill him? And I'm like, no. I said, I said look, guys, come. On. this is, again, in the home, going, hey, where do you think Rob is on the wheel? I said, he just trusted Christ, like a few weeks ago. Where do you think he's on the wheel? Of course he's putting things of playing, you know, uh, beer pong and tequila shots on Facebook, Said, so where do you think is on the wheel? Super infant. So guess what? When Rob comes, we're we going to talk about it. Yeah, but guess what? It's going to come from a place of, dude, I love you. You're an idiot. What are you thinking? <laughs> I know that part of your life, man. But again, it's walking that stuff out. But that, but understanding where they are, your part, my part, God's part, and walking along. But you got to know their story and don't make assumptions. Because of positions or because of stuff that comes out of their mouth. I would have been heaping on all kinds of stuff. And he never even had a relationship with Jesus.
2: It's good, Bob. It's good. Okay, what is the agenda in a one-on-one discipleship? Meaning like devotional, kind of chapters, Bible. What do you walk through? What are some, uh, what are some things that you use? during the one-on-one and kind of what is the agenda and how does any kind of resources come into play?
3: Um, most of the guys that I'm discipling right now, I use, we've used it for years. Our, um, we call it the real life training manual. Any guys that I disciple, I take them through that first. Um, so that's where I start my agenda going into that is, um, I've said it several times. I stay curious, ask a lot of questions hear where they're at, um, what are their needs? What are they missing? What is God doing in their life? And then can supplement some of that, um, almost always give some type of form of, of them an assignment. So they have ownership and buy into it that they need to do until we're back together again. Um, uh, Greg, as I mentioned, we have been through the, the real life training manual. And so he and I are going through, um, the new Testament through some of the biblical stories. And uh, now when he's coming in, he's bringing a story and he's telling me, and then we talk through and debrief that story. And so um, that's that's some of the stuff that I do, Um, but I don't have like a detailed agenda.
4: Yeah, a lot of it's driven out of where they are. Um, I kind of know kind of where I want to see them be a reproducible, mature disciple maker. And so a lot of it's where they are, but one of the... Tools that I use um, outside of Scripture is uh, Discipleship Essentials. I've loved it. There's Scripture memory in there. Walks them through tons of different things, and then there's other things that I want to equip them in. I want to teach them how to share the gospel. I want them to be able to com- be comfortable with their faith and understanding those things. So that's that's a number of things: giving, serving, what their gifts are, all that kind of stuff. So it's just in my mind, I'm trying. I'm I'm with the end in mind, and I'm thinking back. And so just trying to help them take steps as they're ready.
1: One of the things that I always want to do is I want to discover where they're at. Right? So where are you at? Where am I at? How are you you walking with the Lord? What's changed in the last week? Where are you at? So I'll touch bases with them relationally. Then I'll go to, okay, wherever we're at, what does God's word say about that? Because I want them to start going to the word of God, and I want them to understand the word of God. So while I'm talking to them about the word of God, I'll ask questions about how did I come to this conclusion from this passage? Because, again, you want them to start understanding how to read the word of God for themselves, right? And then I'll say, all right, what would it look like to properly apply this in your life to your situation? Because, again, um, let me give you an example. Uh I had a lady, I, I preached a sermon. I had a bunch of people that were called themselves Christians divorcing and for all kinds of crazy reasons. And so I got pretty ticked off. And so I did a sermon on called God Hates Divorce. And I was, you know, mild-mannered as usual. And, <laughs> and uh, went to Malachi and, and all that. And so afterwards, I go out into the foyer. And uh, this little lady comes up to me, and she's crying. She tells me her situation. She's divorced. She's got these kids that are in trouble. She's got. Um, she doesn't know what to do financially. She's in big trouble. She's a mess. And, and she goes, "You know, I, I understand how I got here. I disobeyed the Lord, and I need to go back to my husband." Now, my first thought was, "Praise the Lord." Because I kind of assumed it was because of her decision that she had left her husband. I'm like, awesome. Except for that the Holy Spirit kind of said, hey, uh, why don't you ask her why she left her husband? So I did. I said, can you tell me why you left your husband? She said, yeah, he was sexually abusing my daughters. And I went, whoa, 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 hold on. Let's back up the bus. And I said, "Um, are you in a life group or anything? She wasn't. She's so busy. She's having like multiple jobs, single mom, all kinds of trouble. Uh, she didn't have a relationship. She heard the sermon. She's in trouble. She ties what I said. Now, let me ask you a question. Did I tell her the truth about how God feels about divorce? Did I tell the whole group? Yep. Problem is that that what would she have applied? How would she have applied that message to her individual situation had she not talked to me in the foyer? She would have misapplied that Truth tragically at the expense of her daughters. See, the problem is these people that you can preach a general truth, but you don't know what's specifically going on in their individual lives. And because they don't have somebody to unpack it with them, they misapply. Like I can preach on, you know, God's. going to come. There's judgment day. You're going to heaven or hell. That's all true. So then I got somebody who goes to their uncle without any relationship and says, you're going to hell. Is that how I would have said they should have done it? No, but they don't have anybody to unpack it. That's why doing a sermon only without somebody wise enough to go to unpack it. Remember in Luke's story, he had Tim going, okay, Jim said this, what, how would I apply that? See, it, there's a purpose for the Sunday morning, but it's gotta feed into maturity in Christ, helping you unpack how to specifically apply this to your particular situation. Now in her case, not only did she need somebody to help her personally apply it to her situation But it was going to mean by not going back to her husband, who wanted her back, she was going to have to continue in a really difficult situation as a single mom. She not only needed to know the right application, which was going to continue her suffering financially, but she was going to need strength to live out the difficult situation that you get from other believers, See, relationship doesn't just help you properly apply and unpack the truth to your given situation. Relationship helps you live out. God gives strength to you through other believers as they help you carry your burden to live out the particularly hard things that God may ask you to do. So if all they're getting is preaching or event, when the person gets saved and they're, they're a total mess, going to a weekend service without the unpacking it, applying it, talking through it, and living out encouragement like Luke got in his situation, you don't just all of a sudden, I don't know if it worked this way for you. I was an alcoholic. I was... I was Just telling me I need Jesus and then going, You're still on your own. I was lonely. I had to walk away from my friends. Every day I was battling, and I would come in, and everybody would act like they're fine. And so I'm the freak. But th- th- I only found out later that they're all just as jacked up as I am. They just put on their face and try to handle it alone. And, and, and I needed somebody to help me unravel some of the mess that I was in and then have the st- to support me and pray for me and talk to me when I tried to do the right thing and it didn't work out the right way. See, that's the church. What we're doing isn't. You see what I'm saying? And so how does this all apply? You need weekend service. We're going to talk about this in the next session. How does this weekend service fit? How does it all fit together? How do you line this all up so that it leads to discipleship? It doesn't just happen. That's why God gives administrators and leaders to organize elders, overseers, to put things in a process where they live it out personally, but there's a a, a community of believers that's organized that leads to an end. Make sense to you? All right,
2: Jim. You know, one of the things that uh, is, uh, is... is a huge piece on the first session. We talked about the value of uh, spiritual maturity as a disciple maker, that end target and where does relationship fit. And if God is calling us to have a 10 with him for relationship, one out of 10, have a 10 this way. It's, it's ultimately important with the Lord. And then where is it at with his people? How, where's relationship at? It needs to be a 10 this way. I mentioned that because a lot of oftentimes in the Christian world, I might only be a, a two at relationship. But I think I'm a 10 here. I don't think I get to be a two this way with with God's people. And I'm probably more like a two this way. I say that because when it comes to home groups, if I'm not very good at relationship, I need to know what's expected of me as a home group leader. If I'm going to lead a home group and I'm going to invite people into it, I have to start to realize part of my role is to shepherd them. Part of my role is going to be conflict. Part of my role, so it's an opportunity. So our small group leader position is an opportunity to raise somebody up, and they get a chance to play. They get to actually be what I would call like a a, a pastor, sort of speak, a minister. They get to practice these things, and so what's cool is that's where they'll get to actually love on people, call people, shepherd people, and they start to challenge the people in their group to do that. I say that because for expectations, I'm going to ask questions in my home group to try to identify where people are at spiritually. Well, we have a huge church. So if you say, okay, if I went to your church and I pointed to the congregation, let's say this is a congregation, let's say you're 5,000 people and I point to you and I go, okay, where's that person at spiritually? Hopefully they would be in a home group. We could call the home group leader and say, okay, Mr. Home Group Leader, where is Steve and his wife at? The home group leader, hopefully, could look at this process and not to judge them, but just say, hey, they're at the child stage. How do you know that? How do you know they're at the child stage? Well, here's why. The other day we were having coffee, I was talking through things, they, they came to know Jesus, I know that, they both have Jesus, Lord and Savior, they're moving past infant, they're super excited to be plugged in and part of the church, and part of the home group, but they're not so much kingdom mindset, they don't really want to start serving God yet. They just are really soaking it in. Okay, so I know where that guy's at. So it's kind of nice to know where your people are at that are attending the church service.
0: You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to check out the free primer for the death of discipleship by Jim Putman and Chad Harrington. By going to discipleship.org slash relational, you'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources on our site as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.